Why are you weeping? Really? That's the best question you can come up with at this point? Woman, why are you weeping? I mean, there's this woman wandering around a graveyard in the early morning hours, and at least by some accounts, she's carrying with her spices to help in the burial process of somebody. And the best question you can come up with is, why are you weeping? I almost felt like Captain Obvious should show up and join in the conversation. Isn't it painfully obvious why she's weeping? I mean, surely it doesn't take some kind of angelic being to realize that this is the reason she's there. She's there to weep. You don't have to be an eternal being to figure out what's going here. So why in the world would he ask the question, woman, why are you weeping? After all, I'm sure the angels had some knowledge of the fact that Mary Magdalene had this incredibly special relationship with Jesus. After all, he had been the source of changing her life. She had seven demons that were taken out of her, presumably by Jesus and his ministry. And if you look at the text in Luke, there's also the possibility that she was healed of some grave disease. Her life was changed. Her views of herself and of everything around her was transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. So much so that she became one of a group of women, a small cadre of women, who used their financial means and their abilities to support the public ministry of Jesus. Without their support, Jesus would not have been able to do what he did in those three years of traveling around. She became an essential part of the inner circle of disciples that helped to support Jesus' ministry. She's been a faithful follower. She has been a special servant, a dedicated disciple of Jesus Christ since early on in his public ministry. And so, with all of that, doesn't the angel get it? Doesn't the angel inquiry seem, I don't know, maybe a little naive, maybe short-sighted? Perhaps slightly foolish, woman, <laughs> why are you weeping? Wouldn't, ha wouldn't it have been a more strange and difficult situation if she hadn't been weeping? And yet they ask, why are you weeping? Why would they even ask such a question? I mean, after all, they're angels. Shouldn't they know better? At least in the other Gospels, they do. If you look at the story that takes place here, the resurrection story, the story at the tomb, if you look at it in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Mark, they all understand exactly what's going on. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the, all the synoptics, they have the angel saying, why are you here? Jesus has been raised. You ought to go forward. They understand the whole thing. In none of them do they look at the woman and say, why are you weeping? Only in John is all of that angelic message left out. And all the angels say is one question. Woman, why are you weeping? Now, I'm keenly aware, thank God Dr. Miller and Dr. Russell aren't here, I'm clean, keenly aware that John has a whole different take on things. That he's not there to give you some 
logical historical account. That's not his function and purpose. As a matter of fact, at the end of this same chapter, at the end of chapter 20, he says that I've written these things so that you may believe in he who has sent, been sent. And so I get it that John has a different take on things, and he takes things out of order and here, there, and yon in order to help us to believe. And so I am then forced to make the question, why does he leave this one thing for the angels to say? None of the rest of the proclamation, none of the rest of the heavenly messenger that you would expect. Why does he have them ask but a single question? Why does he give this curious exchange between the angels and Mary Magdalene? What is it about this that might help us to believe in his name? What is it about this question that might help solicit belief? It's got to do something. I mean, after all, Peter and James, or Peter and John rather, have been there and they've left and they have not understood what's going on. Does Mary Magdalene show any inkling of faith, any inkling of belief here? Well, in her response to the question, there at least is something that it's there, that's there. She says to the angels, they've taken my Lord away. I'm impressed by the fact that she says, my Lord. He may be dead and he may be buried, but she has not changed her mind as to who he is. He's still Jesus. He's still her Lord. He's still something particularly unique and special. Even in the sense that she says, and I don't know where they have put him, there's a kind of doggedness in that. I don't know where they put him, and it's almost implied, please tell me, because if I find out, I'm going to go there. I'm going to be with him. I don't want his body, even his dead body, to be left alone. That's why I'm here wandering in this graveyard at the early morning after the Sabbath. And something must take place. Some kind of faith act must be taking place there because as soon as she turns around, who stands there in front of her? But the answer to her question, the answer to her prayers, the answer to her hope, Jesus is standing right there in front of her. Her gritty determination of faith has been rewarded. Jesus is there. And, of course, she doesn't recognize him. More about that in a moment. The whole scene then gets replayed. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Jesus <laughs> asked the same question. Woman, why are you weeping? Now, I'm a little hesitant to take Jesus to task. I thought it was pretty dangerous to take angels to task uh, about asking that. But surely Jesus knows exactly why she's weeping. I mean, he understands what she thinks and feels and the relationship that they have and the changes that have been made in her. And I know he already knows who she's looking for, which is the next question. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? He knows who she's looking for. So why the questions? Why the questions? What is it about this, why are you weeping, that seems so central to John's task in this text? I know Jesus has to reveal himself to her before she can really know him, I mean, I get that. I know that when she turns around, she doesn't recognize him, that Jesus hasn't revealed himself yet, and that that's something that has to happen. It has to happen throughout the resurrection accounts. On the Emmaus Road, they don't recognize Jesus walking with them until he finally reveals himself to them. The same thing happens uh, in chapter 21 in the miraculous catch of fish. They don't recognize it's Jesus saying, throw the net over on the other side until finally he reveals himself. I think in some ways it's the whole story of Thomas and the upper room is the sense that 
he still has to reveal himself for Thomas to believe. It's all part of this process that we don't understand that Jesus has been resurrected until he reveals himself. So if that's the case, that he's got to reveal himself, why is he fixated? Why are the angels fixated on the idea of crying and of weeping before he reveals himself? Why is Jesus posed the same question that the angels pose that all three of them should know and understand the answer to? Woman, why are you weeping? I guess the simplest answer is because it's hard to see Jesus through your tears. It's difficult when you're hurting, when you're crying, when you're in pain, when you're in anguish, when you've got tears either running down your cheeks or flooding in your soul and mind. Those are the hard times to see Jesus. It's hard to see him through our tears. I think that grief can mask God more than unbelief can. I think grief masks our vision of Jesus more than pain, even more than anguish, trouble, heartache. I guess they all kind of come together in this idea of grieving, the kind of grieving that Mary is doing. They can rob even the most faithful follower of their joy, of their hope, of their trust, and of their faith. I tell my students in preaching class and probably in all of the classes, if you don't have a well-developed theology of suffering, you're going to have trouble as a preacher and as a pastor because so much of your life will be bound up in those who are hurting, suffering, grieving. You'll spend a lot of your ministry and a lot of your life with people who are weeping either through their eyes or through their words or through their spirit. And you've got to remember by the time Easter rolls around, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene has seen more than she wants to see. Whether she saw Jesus flogged and beaten, I don't know, or marched through the streets, but she saw the aftermath of it at the very least. She saw the bruises. She saw the bleeding. She saw the nails. She saw the crown of thorns. They, she saw them strip him and hang him on a cross. She saw him die. She was there at the cross. She watched the pain and the hurt. She watched this man who had changed her life and healed her from the inside out be destroyed from the outside in. When it was all over, she stood there when Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, took down this ashen, lifeless body from the cross. And at least according to Luke, she followed them to the grave. She saw them put him in a tomb and roll the stone in front. That was Friday. She's been grieving 
hard for three days. And by Sunday morning, the grief is still raw and the pain and the hurt is still real. John, by the way, never states that she went to the tomb with spices to anoint Jesus' body. As a matter of fact, John says that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had the spices, anointed his body, and wrapped him before they put him in the tomb. So in John, you have to figure out why Mary's even there. She's not showing up to finish the burial process. It's already been done in John. The only reason I can figure out that Mary Magdalene is there is that she doesn't know where else to be. And she's just wandered into the graveyard so that she can sit by the tomb of the Savior of the world that now is dead and gone. I think she's still in shock. I think she's still in denial. She's still hurting. She's still in pain. She's still in grief. It is the most profound aspect of her whole spirit at this point. And when the angels look at her, and when Jesus looks at her and says, why are you weeping? It's not a question of information that they seek. It's a question of the soul. It's a question of the depth of her. Why is she in this state? What is going on? Could you even see God if he were to show up in front of you? And the answer is she couldn't. She's weeping, and she can't see Jesus through her tears. See, Jesus spent a lot of time in his public ministry teaching a gospel that was vastly different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One of the things that inevitably got taught in those circumstances by those who were the priests was a kind of grief about the end, a kind of sense of loss and ending. There's nothing else beyond you know the old line about the Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Jesus taught a different story, and he taught it in everything that he did. You know, at the Sermon on the Mount, he says maybe the most radical of things, and of the radical things that he says at the Sermon on the Mount, surely nothing is more radical than the simple statement that you are blessed when you mourn, for you will be comforted. That wasn't typical. Grieving, wailing, gnashing of teeth, those were the things that happened at funerals and at death. There was no hope. There was nothing else beyond. It ended here. It was done. Jesus said, no, no, no. When you mourn, You'll be blessed because you'll be comforted by the very power and presence of God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus reveals himself at least seven times with statements where he says, I am. He reveals himself as sustenance for life when he says, I am the bread of life. He reveals himself as the illumination of all truth and things when he says, I am the light of the world. He says that he is the entryway into heaven when he says, I am the door. He says that he is the provider and protector of all when he says, I am also the good shepherd. And he reminds them that he is the sustainer of this life and the unifier of life when he says, I am the true vine. 
and my father is the fine dresser. But two of those statements, the only two that repeat themselves, have to do with Jesus and life. For at one point, Jesus reminds them that he is the way maker, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then maybe in the most powerful of all of those statements, he reminds them that he is the overcomer of even death when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Woman, why are you grieving? Why are you crying? Why are you weeping at the tomb? Don't you realize that I am the resurrection and the life? I am the way, the truth, and the life. The gospel is this, that while we may grieve for the night, joy comes in the morning. We see Jesus standing in front of us. when The doctor comes in and says, yes, it's cancer. We see Jesus standing by our side when the phone call comes and tells us that they've died in an accident. And yes, we see Jesus when the church board calls us into a meeting and tells us that they've lost confidence in your ministry and it's time for you to move on. When we grieve, when we feel loss, when we are hurt, Jesus is not away from us. He is instead in the midst of us. If you can't see Jesus through your tears, then you're going to miss his presence in the trying moments of life. Peter Marshall, I believe, is the one who penned, and I saw this a long time ago, a part of a prayer where he says, Give me faith shining through my tears. Jesus reveals to Mary this great, powerful statement of the gospel. Jesus is always present. Come on. Don't take that for granted. That's not some mere theological statement that looks nice on a paper for Dr. Chilcote. This is the truth in which we live. Jesus is always, always always present. There is no place where we can go that Jesus has not already gone before us. Corrie Ten Boom and her sister in the concentration camps in Germany, when they were grieving over all that they had lost and depressed Corrie Ten Boom was of all that she had been deprived of, and her sister looked at her and said, Oh, Corrie, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Jesus reveals to Mary this incredible truth. He is always there, even when she cannot see him through her tears. And in many ways, that's our calling. I learned a long time ago that there are times and moments, undeserved as it is for me, but there are times and moments when, as a minister, I walk into a situation and I represent the presence of Jesus Christ in their midst. 
Their grieving is so great that they can't see Jesus. But I stand there as his representative. And in that, they come to a recognition that even at this moment, Jesus is present. Last week, I spent the week at Canterbury Retreat Center, and I was teaching a group of demon students about preaching. Wonderful group of folks, but since I was out at the retreat center, I went by and saw Tom Phillips' office and stuck my head in, and he waved me in. He was sitting in there with a, a woman doing some, some work in business, and and I opened the door to say hi, and he was sitting there appropriately dressed. If you don't know, Tom's just recently been ordained to the Episcopalian ministry, priesthood. And he's sitting there with his collar on as he's doing the work of ministry that day. And I open the door, and Tom looks at me and smiles, points at his collar, and says, See what you got me into? And I smiled and said, Yes, Father. I did. <laughs> I never understood for a long time why ministers wore collars or robes or any of those kind of things. I ministered in the church of God and, you know, a suit and a tie was fine and all of that until I realized that there are times when the symbol of the presence of God and of the ministry of Jesus Christ is a more powerful thing than I could ever imagine. And I found that when I walked into hospital rooms or living rooms where people were grieving. And just my presence as representative of Christ made a difference. And oftentimes those cases I would carry my Bible with me. Not a phone, sorry I'm old, but a Bible with me. And oftentimes opening it up and reading something. And that seemed to make a difference in the situation even if it was just Psalm 23, a familiar passage. Somehow the Bible being open would represent the power of the presence of Christ. You see, we're living symbols of the fact that Jesus is present even when you're weeping. I've seen it happen by a hospital bed. I've seen it take place in a funeral home. I've seen it take place when somebody simply can't hardly stand. I, uh, I was asked to do a funeral in Indiana. I was pastoring there. Somebody I didn't know anybody, you know, just one of those. My wife and I drove into the funeral home. I never saw so many motorcycles in all my life. They were lined up all down the entryway into the funeral home and around. When I went in, the young man who had died, he had, if my memory serves me right, he had committed suicide, was dressed in his motorcycle gear, t-shirt, Harley Davidson, some chains. Periodically, these young people would walk in. They would stand by the casket, they would cry out aloud, they would swear, they would weep, they would kneel, they'd shake their heads, and then they would leave, go back outside, try and recover. They had no sense that there was anything else beyond death. 
It was, I thought, maybe the most important funeral that I would ever do because it might be for many of them the first time they've really heard the gospel in any way they could understand. And yet, I realized that they would not remember anything that I said. The grief was too great. And we're going to remember some smart theological point or some insightful biblical statement. But they would remember one thing. That someone who had been called by Jesus Christ to minister in his name stood in front of them and told them that there was hope. And that that was powerful enough to make a difference in their lives. You see, we represent the real power of God in the community, not just in the pulpit and not just at the funeral home. We represent the real power of Christ being lived out in community. We represent the power and the reality of Christ after the Pulse Massacre. We represent the power and presence of Christ after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and the shootings. We represent the power and presence of Jesus Christ after First Baptist in Southern Springs, Texas. We represent the hope and the power of Christ after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico. And if we were to stand in the midst of a devastated community today in Guatemala, as the volcanoes do terrible, terrible destruction, we would still be the power of the presence of God in the midst of horrific suffering and evil. At times like that, folks, we need each other. We need to band together to lock arms with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The problem with ministry too often is we're lone rangers. We're off by ourselves. What a tragedy that is for both us and for the community that needs to see us standing together for Christ. I'm wondering, how much do you think you need each other to fulfill this calling. We all know that we need Christ. We all know that we need the power of the Spirit to do this. Without question, that's what we need. But in the midst of this, we also need each other. Because without each other, hanging on together, standing for Christ together, then our witness is not fulfilled. The song says, stand with me. Agree with me, for we are all a part of God's family. Why are you weeping, Mary? You're weeping because you're human, and it's what we do. But turn around, because the Savior of the world stands right there with you. Would you stand?